We open the Holy Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of the Scriptures' most well-known chapters on that cardinal Christian grace, love. In the Holland Congregation, I'm currently doing a series on this chapter, an in-depth study of the biblical concept of love. So the sermon this afternoon is simply a, a recent sermon in that series. We'll read the entire chapter, and then we'll focus our attention on a portion of verse 4. Let us hear the word of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. <clears throat> but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but, that which is per but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child... I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. <clears throat> Beloved in the Lord, as mentioned a moment ago, the subject of 1 Corinthians 13 is charity. And that word charity in our King James Version means love. It's a word that is used to denote true Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13 is familiar to us undoubtedly because it is a prose poem of great beauty. Inspired by the Holy Spirit to set before us precisely what love is. And we understand how important love is because, as we heard this morning, the sum of God's law, that is the essence of his will for our lives, is love. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's how we glorify God. 
by living a life of love. That is, in fact, the more excellent way of the Christian life, as described at the closing verse of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. Covet earnestly the best gifts, the apostle says to the Corinthians, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way the most excellent of the spiritual gifts God gives to his people, the most excellent of the gifts that God gives to us on the basis of Christ's work for us is the gift of love, which is listed first among the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now, as we have read 1 Corinthians 13, perhaps it caught your attention that at least the first half of this chapter is occupied with describing love in action. And that indeed is how 1 Corinthians 13 defines love for us. It sets before us what love thinks and what love does. Love's attitudes and actions. And that's how you recognize true Christian love. True Christian love shows itself and is identified by what it does. Love Genuine love suffereth long. That is, it is patient. One who is living by love will be patient, long-suffering, and is kind. Love shows itself as kindness. And then the third among these many characteristics or actions of love is Our text, what we're going to focus on in the sermon this afternoon, charity envieth not. Love is not envious. Really what the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is doing in this chapter is he is painting the portrait of love. And with each of the Apostle's pen strokes, a beautiful color is added to that canvas And as you work your way through 1 Corinthians 13, more and more facial features of love come into view until at the end of the chapter, what you have is the face of Jesus Christ. While 1 Corinthians 13 is instruction to us how we are to love, that is the objective of this text. The apostle is instructing the Corinthians, and in chapter 12, he's addressed a problem they have with the misuse of spiritual gifts. They were giving too much prominence to some spiritual gifts, and they were diminishing the importance of others, and so there was division in the congregation. Some were puffed up in pride because they thought they had the best gifts, like tongues and other things, and others were looking with jealousy at those who had what appeared to be superior gifts. And the apostle here says, no. In fact, the most excellent gift is love, and love is the gift that ties all of the other spiritual gifts together. And the fact that there is this division in your congregation, Corinthians, indicates there's a problem with love. This is what true love looks like. This is how you are called to live towards one another. This text is instruction for us how to live. But ultimately, we see here the face of Jesus Christ, in whom the perfect love of God is made fully manifest. Jesus loved us with a love that was never envious. And thus, in response, in thankfulness to what he has done for us in his saving love, we are a people who are to love one another with love that is not envious. 
And so we're now going to focus on one distinct facial feature in that portrait of love. That love is content, not full of envy. And thus the Christian in whose heart love reigns will be a person who does not lash out at his neighbor or rebel against God with an envious spirit. Love is not envious. That's our theme. We're first going to look at the character of this envy that we are warned against in our text. Then we will look at its deadliness and make some applications that urge upon us as God's people to put away envy wherever it might find a home in our hearts and lives. And then finally, we will look at the remedy to the envy that we as fallen people struggle with. Love is not envious. That's the message of the text. And we look first at envy then. Envy is in character similar to its cousin, covetousness. It is a sinful passion of the heart that makes its home inside of us. And envy can be something that is difficult for us to get a hold of because it is not always so in your face the way another sinful passion like anger might be. Envy easily lies hidden from view in the heart until, on some occasion, it bursts out in a destructive way. The verb envieth, the word in our text, means literally to burn with fervent zeal or desire for something. That's the word in the text. And this word can have either a positive or a negative connotation depending on the context in which the word is used. Fervent zeal, or fervent zeal and earnest desire can be a good or a bad thing depending on the object of that zeal or desire and the methods that the zealous man employs in obtaining the object of his desire. There is a fervent zeal that is holy. Think of the second commandment that we heard this morning in which God himself says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. The perfectly holy one has a certain holy jealousy. What does that mean, that God is a jealous God? It means that God has a zeal for the glory of his own name, and it's good and proper that he does. If God did not have a zeal for his own name, he would not be God. He would not be holy, because God, as God, is the supreme good, the only good and the fountain of all good. And therefore, it is only right that he have a zeal for his glory and for his honor. God is the only one who is rightly self-centered. Later on in, in this chapter, you read, love seeketh not her own. The idea being, Christian love is not self-seeking. But for God, seeking his own glory is a holy activity because he is God and he is the supreme good. And thus, rightly, Holily, he has a jealousy for the honor and glory of his name. And that's embedded into the second commandment. That's why we don't worship images or use any images or other man-devised things as representations of God because that takes his glory and gives it to another. God has a jealousy for his name. Or think of Jesus Christ when he drove the buyers and sellers out of the temple 
When our sinless Savior engaged in that activity, his disciples remembered the words of Psalm 69, verse 9, which were fulfilled at that time. Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus was not prompted by some sinful passion in him, but a good, holy zeal for the sanctity of God's house, which led him to employ proper means for the cleansing of the temple. There you have zeal, an earnest desire that is holy and directed towards a proper object. And this holy zeal, this fervent desire that is in harmony with God's word, is also in harmony with true Christian love. Indeed, it is an expression of love. Christian love is not a lukewarm thing. Christian love ought not to be an indifferent thing that doesn't care about evil, isn't concerned about righteousness. Love is not lukewarm, but love burns with a fervent, holy desire. Love is something that's difficult to define, but you can get down to the essence of love and describe it somewhat this way, that true Christian love is a fervent desire and a committed pursuit of the true good of another person. And thus, love towards God is a fervent desire for and a committed pursuit of that which glorifies God. And love for my neighbor is an earnest desire and a committed pursuit of what is truly good for them. Most especially the eternal salvation of their soul, but also a care for their material well-being And the rest, love seeks what's good for the other. And it's proper that love be zealous. Love should not be lukewarm or indifferent. So, a fervent desire, such as our text describes, is not necessarily bad. But, the word of our text can also have a strongly negative connotation, and that is what is in view here. The word of our text can also mean to burn with a fervent desire for something such that it creates an unre- it creates unrest, restlessness in your soul that consumes you. This word means to burn with envy or with jealousy in a sinful way. Another Bible passage that uses the same word as we have in verse 4 of our text is James 4, verse 2. James 4, verse 2, where the inspired writer says this, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. And that word desire is the word envy, the same word that we have in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. There, James is addressing the sinful passions of the heart that can tear apart a family, tear apart a church, when envy prevails. Galatians 5, 21, in the same chapter where the fruits of the Spirit are described, we also have the works of the flesh described, the works of the flesh that Christians are called to put off by the power of the Spirit. And one of those works of the flesh is envy, envy. So, having looked in general at the meaning of the term in our text and having noted that an earnest desire, a fervent zeal is not necessarily wrong, 
It is good when it is directed according to God's word, yet nonetheless, our text is focusing on the wrong kind of fervent zeal and, or fervent zeal and earnest desire, namely envy. Now, what is envy? What precisely is envy? Envy is simmering resentment, ill will towards another person because of something they have that you want. That's envy in a nutshell. A simmering resentment and ill will towards another person because they have something you want. It's like covetousness, very similar to covetousness, but with an added dose of enmity in it. A burning desire that inflames resentment, even hatred towards your neighbor or your brother or your sister because they have something you want. They may not have done something to you that makes you upset, but they have something, and you wish you had it, or you think they should not have it, and it bothers you that they do have it. Envy is selfishness coming into contact with your neighbor's prosperity, and it ignites flame in your heart. Envy sees the neighbor's prosperity, whatever that may be, the size of their house, the income they have, the privileges they enjoy, perhaps because they were born in a certain family. Fill in the blank. Something you might see in a neighbor or a brother or a sister that you wish you had and it bothers you that you don't. And it bothers you that they do. That's where envy enters the picture. Envy is grieved by the neighbor's prosperity. And there you see why the text says, charity envieth not. Why love is not envious. Because love, at its heart, is pursuing the true good of my neighbor. And love is self-sacrificial. Look at the love of Jesus Christ. Herein is the love of Christ displayed that he gave his life for his friends. He gave of himself to do the greatest good to those he loved. That's love. Envy flips that on its head. Envy is bothered, upset by the good of my neighbor. It's the opposite of true Christian love. Envy gets annoyed when the neighbor is successful. Envy produces a certain disdain for the neighbor who receives recognition or praise. Envy finds the neighbor's flourishing to be frustrating and irritating. And so the outgrowth of envy, when it finds a place in our hearts, is ill will, dark thoughts, even wicked desires concerning our neighbor. You might start to dislike that neighbor because of what he has, or because of his success, or because of his prosperity. Envy has thoughts like this. I'd love to see some sort of some sort of harm befall him. I'd like to see him lose that thing I'm jealous of. That, that would make me feel a little better. 
And that's why Jesus, the Word of God teaches us that envy is one of the roots of murder. Lord's Day 40 of our Catechism makes that point when it describes those sins of the heart that stand behind murder and which God, in fact, accounts as murder, envy is included among them. Envy is a kind of murder of the heart. The opposite of love which seeks the advantage and the well-being of the neighbor. And so, we see then how this fits into the Christian life. The Christian is one who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, saved from sin and death by the finished work of our Savior that we looked at this morning. And now the Christian is called to live a new life in response to and in thankfulness for that redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Behind the redemptive work of Jesus Christ was love amazing, that self-giving love that Jesus showed us on the cross. He died for our sins. And now we are called to a life, the more excellent way, of love for God and love for our neighbor, our brother and sister in the church, but also our neighbor, whoever God in his providence leads across our path. We're called to love them. With a love that is to look like Jesus' love for us. Never, never pull those two apart. When we talk about Christian love, we must always think about Christian love as a response to and patterned after Jesus' love. Ultimately, true Christian love is a fruit of the love of God toward us. We love God because he first loved us. And his love, as Romans 5 tells us, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. There's no true love apart from the saving grace of God worked in our hearts. But as God works that saving grace in us, the fruit is love and the kind of love that we are called to live out and to show and to walk in and to manifest in every dimension and area of our lives is a love that should look like Jesus' love. That's being Christ-like. The Christian life is a life of being Christ-like, reflecting him. And so when you think about that, Wow, that makes love into a wonderful thing, doesn't it? In our Western societies, the concept and word love has been hijacked by all sorts of different groups who want to redefine love as a lukewarm indifference to evil. Love is letting everyone do whatever they want and never saying no to them. That's not love. True love looks like what we have here in 1 Corinthians 13. True love is costly. True love is is self-sacrificial. True love puts brother, sister, neighbor before myself. True love rejoices at my neighbor's prosperity. True love seeks to do good and protect the well-being of my neighbor in as much as I am able. True love seeks what is good and glorifying to God. 
And so as we live together as families, as a congregation, let that be the love that prevails among us. And let us, let us use 1 Corinthians 13 as a mirror into which we look. Is this how I live? In that mirror we see the face of Jesus in which the perfect love of God is displayed and that comforts us. That's the love God has for me. But now I want to reflect that as much as I can by the power of his spirit in my life to my spouse. whom God has given me, my, my wife or my husband. God has given my spouse to me so that I may love her, love him like this. My children, my fellow church members. That's the Christian life. That's true love. And that true love is not envious. So as we look into the mirror of this passage, we also need to see the reflection of our own sins, do we not? Does envy find a home in my heart? Does it find a home in your heart? Does it show in your life? Do you recognize it when it does? And the urgency here is, wherever envy shows itself in my life, it's going to get in the way of my expression of love to my neighbor, to my God. And where envy takes root in my life, I won't be reflecting Christ the way I'm called to. And as God's people, that should be what we have that earnest desire and fervent zeal for. I want to reflect Christ, live in a way that glorifies him, and live in such a way that my life becomes a living epistle. So when people see me, they catch a glimpse of my Savior. So where does envy find its home in our hearts? Let us make the psalmist's prayer our own. Search me, O Lord. Try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Strengthen me to put off envy wherever it might be found. Well, that's the character of envy as our text sets it before us, contrasted with the character of true love. Now, to progress in the application of this text, we need to see something of the deadliness of envy when it is allowed to find a home in our hearts and allowed to stay there for a long time. Envy, when it inhabits our hearts doesn't just leave things the way it found things. Envy wants to take control. Envy leaves its mark. Envy wants to get its fingers in all of life. Envy is dangerous. Let us not cherish it. It's damaging. It's like a deadly disease that can grow and spread, hurts you, dishonors God, harms the neighbor. Let's look for a moment at the danger that envy poses to ourselves if we give it a place in our hearts. One Bible passage that really 
highlights the deadliness of envy harbored in the heart is Proverbs 14, verse 30. And remember, Proverbs is the wisdom of Jesus Christ. In Proverbs 8, we have described for us the wisdom of God. And as we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And so whenever we read the Proverbs, we should be thinking of this. This is Jesus speaking to me. This is Jesus imparting wisdom. Now in Proverbs 14, verse 30, we have the wisdom of Jesus Christ concerning envy. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. There's a word picture there. First, a a healthy heart. A healthy heart pumps blood through the circulatory system the way it's supposed to. A healthy heart is an essential part of a healthy life and a healthy body. And spiritually speaking, the heart is the center of our personhood. It is the center of who we are. And from it, another verse in Proverbs 4 says, from it flows the issues of life. And thus, a spiritually sound heart, a new heart given by the grace of God, a heart that has faith and hope and love, that heart is a sound and healthy heart from which will come healthy issues of life. But envy is very different. When envy takes root inside of us, it is like a rottenness of the bones. It's a spiritual disease of the soul that can sicken the whole body. You think about it. If someone has a a terrible bone disease so that their skeletal frame begins to break down, the bones get weak, even there's rottenness that eats away at them, the whole life of that person is changed. It has a destructive effect on the whole person. And that's the idea here. Envy, when given a place in our hearts, when kept there, when cultivated, when it takes root, the whole person begins to waste away. It drains joy. It drains peace. It takes away vitality, strength. It eats away at your spiritual life. It affects your walk with God and your walk with fellow believers just as rottenness in the bones is something that would be physically crippling. So to envy when harbored and lived in cripples the spiritual life of the Christian. In many ways, Envy is a spiritual rot that can lead to many, many sins. It produces a polluted stream of sinful thoughts towards my neighbor or towards God. Ultimately towards God. Just like its cousin, covetousness, envy is ultimately rebellion against God. It's saying, God, you have not done me right. You have not given me what I should have, but you've made a big mistake and you've given it to my neighbor. Everything's messed up. Envy saying to the sovereign God, you've got it wrong. It should be this way. Envy leads to sins against the neighbor. Think of Saul's relationship with David, which was corroded by Saul's envy. Remember in 1 Samuel 18, the people of Israel were singing about the great battle exploits of their king and of young David, and the people of Israel gave David the greater praise. 
David has slain tens of thousands, but Saul only his thousands. And the Bible tells us after that, Saul eyed him. Saul had that green eye of envy. And there we see how Saul's envy would become a root of murder. That javelin throw to pin David to the wall. Part of what was behind it was envy. Envy. Another danger for Christians in this world is envying the wicked. Because it is a a reality that often those who want nothing to do with God and transgress his commandments often seem to do quite well for themselves. Thus Psalm 37 verse 1 says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. When we see the apparent prosperity of the wicked, we must pause as Asaph did in Psalm 73, and remember the Lord is sovereign and the Lord is doing his work with them as well and that they shall come to their appointed end and their prosperity is ultimately an illusion. That prosperity only places them in slippery places. Those who have true prosperity are those who have Jesus Christ and all riches in him. When we envy the the wicked, we can be tempted to adopt their methods. The unbelieving man in the neighborhood seems like he can provide a lot better for his family if, because he's, he doesn't have these constraints of Christianity. He can work on Sunday. He can do all of these things. He's not so limited in his business practice because he doesn't have ten commandments to follow. And our minds can start going in that direction as we see his prosperity and whether we acknowledge it or not we're thinking God's done something wrong I should be prosperous not him and very easily we can let ourselves loosen up on our adherence to God's commandments and we can justify it so easily I have to provide for my family it's not fair and all of the rest but behind it can be envy envy in the heart Thus God says, don't be envious against the workers of iniquity. Don't adopt their methods, their ways of life. Remember, to be a Christian requires much self-sacrifice. That's the life of the Christian, but it's a glorious life. We follow in the footsteps of our Savior, who gave all for us to give us all. One more category of applications. Envy poses a danger to people around us when we give it a place in our hearts. Envy is one of those things that can lead to a breakdown of our relationships. It can act like an acid on the ties that bind us together as friends or even family members. That happened in the first family. I mean, the first family of Adam and Eve. What was Cain's response when he saw God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice? Cain didn't step back and reflect upon his own actions and the reality that he disobeyed God's commandment and brought the works of his own hands and tried to make himself acceptable to God by his own works rather than the blood of the lamb. But 
Genesis 4 verse 5 says, Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. There we see the rottenness of the bones that is that is envy already at work in Cain's heart. He was envious of the favor and the acceptance that he saw his brother Abel get. Now, we understand Cain, as a reprobate, did not have genuine love for God. It's not as if he really wanted to have a strong relationship with God, but just was getting it wrong. No, Cain was a proud man. And seeing his brother approved of bothered him. Bothered him. And that simmering resentment led to an ever-deeper wedge between those brothers... Until, alone in the field one day, Cain rises up. And envy, which had been simmering there, bursts forth in the first murder. That's why the wisdom of Jesus Christ in Proverbs 27 verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Think of Jacob's family. What damage envy did to Jacob's family. Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph, one of Rachel's sons, because he showed favoritism to Rachel. And those were some of Jacob's besetting sins, and he would reap the consequences for them. Joseph was clad in that coat of many colors. Joseph had his dreams, which he told to his brothers, and that really kindled their anger. Then in Genesis 37, verse 11, we read this, that after jo Joseph's brothers heard about his dreams, and as they saw their father's favoritism on him, his brethren envied him. That envy stood behind and was part of the motive for throwing him into that pit and then selling him to the Midianite traders. The deacon and evangelist Stephen in Acts 7 verse 9 says that very thing in his sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem where he says, The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And that points out the great danger that envy has. When, we're, when we know our sinful natures, we need to recognize that we're capable of things and wickedness that can be breathtaking. And envy is one of those things that when it sits there in the heart, can burst out in destructive ways to the harm of the neighbor, like it did with Cain, like it did with Joseph, like it can in us. And so as God's people, we see the deadliness of envy, this rottenness in the bones, and the wisdom of Jesus Christ comes to us, and that should lead us to say, Father, grant me the grace and the strength to see this sin wherever it may find a place in my life, and to uproot it by the power of thy Spirit. Envy ought to be a prime target in the Christian spiritual warfare of daily conversion. Wherever this stronghold of sin shows itself, we tear it down with the sword of the Spirit. Think of how envy can affect a relationship with a friend or family member. That simmering resentment 
when that simmering resentment is there, you end up growing distant. And a friend you used to be close to, you just don't want to be around as much because you're bothered by something they have. Maybe the friend senses that and it becomes awkward to be around each other and that friendship begins splitting. Envy can be the rottenness in the bones of a marriage. It's part of why the Tenth Commandment says not to covet your neighbor's wife. Or reverse, not to covet your neighbor's husband. The Tenth Commandment there is saying something different than the Seventh Commandment. It's not talking about lust, according to the Seventh Commandment, but it's talking about the reality that we can envy another person's spouse. I wish my wife did that, or had that quality, or those gifts. I see in another member of the church, or my friend's wife, I wish my husband was more like him. And very quickly, envy can start burning in our heart and we become upset with our spouse because she or he is not like another. And as that envy festers there, it strains our relationship. It changes the way I relate to my spouse. Bitterness can start to grow and envy can become the rottenness in the bones of a one-flesh union of marriage. Thus, the danger and the wisdom of Jesus Christ make envy a top-priority target in your spiritual warfare of the Christian life. Finally, envy can be destructive to the body of Christ. Envy can inject rottenness into the bones of a church. This was a warning that was necessary for the Corinthians to hear. As I alluded to earlier, the Corinthians, as you can read in chapter 12, as well as earlier in the book, the Corinthians were having all kinds of problems. There was division in the congregation. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Others were saying, I'm of Christ. And you had these different factions forming that were at odds with each other, and there was a certain envy there. In chapter 12, you had certain gifts that were receiving more attention in the church so that the persons who possessed those spiritual gifts thought themselves to be something better than the other members. And the members down here envied those that had gifts that seemed to be better. And so the apostle addresses this and he says, no, as the body of Christ, you're called to love each other. And when you love each other, you're not envious of each other. When you love each other, you're glad when... Your brother, your sister has something good. God gave it to them. And you say, thanks, Lord, for giving my brother that gift or my sister that gift. You see, envy can make church life dysfunctional. Take this for example. There's a member in the congregation who's particularly gifted in a certain way and you envy them. And what your envy is really saying is, I wish God didn't give that gift to that person, even though it's a blessing to the church, because I want it. I would rather the church be deprived of that gift. Envy and selfishness, they go hand in hand. But love, love says, whenever God gives a gift to a brother or a sister in the church, I rejoice. 
Because God has given that gift for the good of the whole body. That's something that the the Corinthians needed to be instructed about in terms of spiritual gifts. God doesn't give spiritual gifts to be our own little private possessions. And really, you can extend that. God doesn't give gifts in general to be our own little private possessions that we can hang on to and use just for self. But when God gives gifts, those gifts are given that we may use them, as our catechism says, for the advantage and salvation of one another. And so when there's a gifted member of the congregation or a wealthy member of the congregation, fill in the blank. Love says that's good. Because God has put that person here and given that gift for the service of the whole body. And it's good that way. It's good that we're not all hands, not all eyes. God created the body to have many different members who carry out a different role. We need each other. That's the way God intended it. You see, envy, envy wants to scrap all of that. Envy wants it all for me. Love says, no. I gratefully receive what God gives me, and I will use it as a means to express my love to my brothers and sisters and to glorify him, and I say thanks as well for what God gives my neighbor brother, my sister. Love, therefore, enables the body of Christ to function. Love is that bond of perfectness that brings all of the gifts together for the benefit of the whole body. We've looked at the character of envy and contrasted it with love. We've looked at the deadliness of envy. Now we conclude with the remedy. What is the remedy of this sinful passion that we as God's people struggle with because we have that old man of sin still? The only remedy is grace. You can't educate envy out of someone. You can't discipline envy out of something. Now, that that doesn't mean don't try to be self-disciplined. But what it does mean is no human power is going to uproot this sin from the heart. No human power is sufficient to uproot any sin. The only power that can uproot sin, the only power that can give us victory over sin, is the sovereign grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great physician that we need. And remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is his portrait. Jesus Christ is the one who savingly loves his people with a love that is not envious. And thus, the power to live a new life, the power to put off sin, is power that comes to us through the operation of the Spirit in our heart. It is the power of Christ in us. Think again of that marvelous love of Jesus Christ, who begrudged us no good thing, whose love is the opposite of envy. In fact, he laid down his life for us. Laid down his life. That we might be saved from our sins, spiritually reborn, given a place with him and his Father in glory. What love 
saving love. The Spirit of Christ works in the hearts of God's people to change us from glory to glory more and more so that we put off these works of the flesh and manifest more and more the works of the Spirit. And so in our Christian warfare, depend not on self, but depend upon the power of the Spirit. Let your confidence not be placed in self, but your confidence be placed in the God of your salvation. And strive, as the Word of God says, to identify envy, to put it off, to put it off by the power of Christ. Instead of envy, love will flourish. And when love flourishes, contentment and gratitude will prevail. Restful satisfaction in what God has given me, regardless of what he's given to the neighbor. That's God's business. Let God's sovereignty take care of the distribution of his things. Thanks, Father, for what you've given me. And you've given me everything. Because you gave me Christ. Christ who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And we are so rich in him. When you have Christ, and when you're dwelling in that awareness of all that you have in Christ, envy loses its power. What is there to envy? What is there to be jealous over? Why not be content? I have Christ. I have everything. I could lose everything in this world and yet lose nothing because if I have Christ, I have everything. And having Christ, ultimately I can never lose anything that is truly of abiding value. And so love, love is not grieved when God does good to the neighbor. Love is not threatened by the neighbor's prosperity. Love is satisfied. God and God's work and what God does according to his good pleasure for his glory. Let that be the zeal that eats us up. Zeal for God's glory and the good of God's people. And when that zeal burns in our, in our hearts, There's no room left for envy. Amen. Our faithful God and our heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word. An instructive word that addresses a particular indwelling sin that we struggle against. Give us victory over this sin by the power of Jesus Christ. More and more conform us to him that we might love one another with a love that looks like Christ's love for us. This we ask in his name. Amen.